Blog Talk Radio. Hey there, Dr. Ross Green here, along with my co-host, Susie Barton. It's time for Parenting Your Challenging Child. We do this every Monday morning, September through May, at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. And on this program, we do our best to help you with your behaviorally challenging child, help you figure out what's going on, and help you do what's going to work. Susie, how are you today? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I am well. Uh, let's not skip the call-in number. It's 347-994-2981. Please press 1. We do not have any callers at the moment. So, uh, first of all, let's start with anything. Sometimes you have things you like to talk about before we get rolling. Uh, if you do today, let's start there. If not, we'll start with email. Okay. Yes, I have a question. I read an article on good parenting in American families, and it described what the article referred to as a family that was too kid-centric. Dr. Green, do you think families can be too kid-centric, and how does Plan B impact on this? What does kid-centric mean? Um, That it's too much focused on the kid, that parents weren't taking the authority. Well, now that's two different things. Too focused on the kids. Uh, You know, my attitude is I think that's why you have kids, is to be focused on them. That doesn't mean you're focused on them to the exclusion of focusing on the marriage or focusing on one's self, but I think you have kids to focus on them. So if that's what kid-centric means, I don't think we're too kid-centric. I guess we're only being too kid-centric if we are focusing on the kids to the exclusion of all else. Um, And I don't know if it's my observation that parents on the aggregate are too focused on their kids to the exclusion of all else. But I do think you have kids to focus on them. Now, but the other part, would fall outside the definition I just gave of being kid-centric, and that means adults not having enough authority. But authority is an interesting word. Um, Do I think that adults need to have expectations? Yes. Hard to imagine kids living in a world without expectations, because let's face it, we adults, we've been in the world, so we know a thing or two, Mm -hmm. and we want kids to benefit from the thing or two that we know about the real world. Uh, So we do need to have expectations. Expectations are how we exert our influence. Without expectations, adults have no influence. Where the problems come in is when adults have no expectations. I don't come across that too often. It exists, but I don't think it's as common as people think it is. Or and this is, of course, where the rubber really meets the road, when adults are shooting for control rather than influence, and when adults 
are imposing solutions to expectations that their kid is having difficulty meeting, that's what in the CPS model is referred to as plan A, rather than gathering information from the child, making about what's getting in his or her way, um, making sure the child is clear about the adult's concerns about the expectation not getting met, and then collaborating on solutions that are realistic and mutually satisfactory. In the CPS model, of course, that is referred to as plan B. This is why I sometimes stumble on the word authority, because a lot of people use the word authority to refer only to plan A, a unilateral imposed solution. But let there be no doubt, you are being every bit as much the authority figure when you are using plan B, you're probably having greater influence because, let's face it, while Plan A sometimes deludes people into thinking that they have control, they don't. So, if being too kid-centric means focusing on the kid to the exclusion of all else, well, that would not be good. If it means putting a lot of emphasis on raising kids, well, that's great. Hard, hard, mm-hmm. hard to call that uh, a problem. If being kid-centric means that adults are losing authority because they're not doing plan A, well, you don't got to do plan A to have authority. You you pick up a whole lot of authority and credibility points when you're doing plan B. What do you think? Yeah. I think that plan B is a healthy balance. I like to think that. So um, those are my thoughts on that. Well, thank you. And also you're doing a uh, special evening presentation tonight for um, a parent's training with GEAR. I am am doing a... Support network. There's going to be about 500 people there, I'm told, and I'm also told that there is room for no more, regrettably. Uh So... But that's terrific. Yeah, that's great. It's up in Ellsworth, Maine, which uh-huh. is a two-and-a-half-hour drive from Portland. Um, and so while I would love to say that all are welcome, apparently there – you know what I would do if I was somebody? I would show up anyways because sometimes when I do these evening talks, people who say they're coming don't come. That's true. And um, so maybe you show up anyways. That's probably how I'd play it. <sighs> But yes, that's tonight. Um, And the weather's going to cooperate, so even better. Yes. Good. Any other thoughts before we get rocking on some email here? Uh, No. Here we go. Let's rock. Here we go. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hello. My son, age seven, is at times very challenging at school. He gets upset about stuff, and I don't mean a little upset. I mean chuck a chair across the room upset. I know saying it's about stuff isn't correct nor fair to my son. I am sure the difficulty is specific things. I just have no idea what those things are. The school has no idea either. We have worked with medical doctors and psychologists. He has no academic learning disabilities. In fact, he is very bright. They did feel ADHD may be present, but he does not present in a classic way. We attempted using stimulant medication but stopped after six doses as they made everything much worse. For example, ripping apart the classroom and spending 30 minutes in the cornfield worse. 
At school, he's quickly become that kid, and we, those parents. He has no real friends and has never been invited to a birthday party. Yet he still feels positively about school, wants to go, and wants to behave. I feel the school is really trying their best. They have a whole team working to try to help him. It's just that what they're doing isn't working. Now here's the fun part. At home, we have a smart, funny, caring, adventurous little boy who, when upset, may grumble, even stomp, but would never react the way he does at school. At at family get-togethers and on outings, he is well-mannered. He is active in sports and music with little to no difficulties. He only demonstrates the intense reactions at school. I understand that the social and academic expectations at school are different than at home, but this is the interesting part. In an effort to help him at school, we have been sending him only half the day, and I have been homeschooling, with school support, the remainder of the day, the lessons he is missing. At home, he learns effectively and demonstrates understanding of the concepts and completes the tasks with ease. We have four older children who are all successful. Uh, Two are independent young adults and two are preparing for university. I am a rather strict parent, not in a my way or the highway, more so in the sense of I have firm expectations for my children about how they are members of our home and family. Two of the four children were challenging, not as much as the youngest, but challenging. My husband and I are both educated, successful, and active members of our small community. I understand that is a lot of background, but I wanted you to have that information when considering my question. I am considering homeschooling him full-time. So my question is, if I change the way my son receives his education and ensure that he has ample opportunity to have a variety of social interactions with the intention of reintroducing public school, once he becomes more proficient with his lagging skills, do I limit his ability to learn to overcome his difficulties? Thank you for your time. Well, that is a very interesting scenario. Because the classic demonstration of challenging behaviors is that they are more common at home than at school. So this is one of those exceptions to the rule where the boy is being more challenging at school than at home. But either way, the goal is to figure out what expectations he's having difficulty meeting in the environments in which he's having difficulty meeting them. And it's true. The expectations of home are often quite different than the expectations at school. The home environment can be much different than the school environment. And so it shouldn't be surprising that some kids look bad, as I sometimes call it, in one environment more than the other. It's just that this kid is an exception to the rule He's more challenging at school than he is at home. But we're still on the hook. And this sounds like a great little guy. On the basis of your email, I do not think Susie or I can figure out what expectations he's having difficulty meeting at school that are prompting his challenging behaviors. Now, I don't know anything about the school, but it is troubling that they don't know what those expectations are either. It is possible, and this is my usual experience, that they haven't been focused on the expectations. They've been focused on the byproduct of those unmet expectations, what I call the fever, 
the signal, the behaviors. And if we're only focused on a kid's challenging behaviors, and if all we're focused on is on modifying those behaviors, we never figure out what problems are causing those behaviors. In other words, what expectations the kid is having difficulty meeting, and we never end up working on them. Now, so it's noteworthy that you're saying that the school hasn't figured it out yet either. It could be that they're focused on the wrong thing, but of course, I have no idea. But I wonder, there's another source of information here that we don't want to overlook. Your son. He, sometimes kids, are much better at telling us what expectations they're having difficulty meeting, what what demands the school is placing on him that he's struggling with and therefore getting upset about. And so between the school hopefully focusing on the right thing, expectations he's having difficulty meeting, in the CPS model, those are referred to as unsolved problems, and your son telling us what people are bugging him about, what he's getting in trouble for, what people are giving him a hard time about at school, uh, well, we should be able to figure out what expectations he's having difficulty meeting at school. And now let's get to your specific question. Um, I don't know if we're going to – well, first of all, if people are just utterly unable to figure out what expectations he's having difficulty meeting, we don't want to prolong the agony of having him stay at school. So as a last resort, it's great that homeschooling is working out as a viable option. I'm just not sure that homeschooling is going to help us figure out what expectations he's having difficulty meeting at school what lagging skills are contributing to those unmet expectations. So if it's the case that what we've been primarily focused on on is behavior, and we really haven't been focused on unsolved problems, then another option besides going over to homeschooling immediately is to change course on how the school is trying to help your son identify those unsolved problems and start trying to solve them collaboratively and proactively. Now, I could be completely wrong about what the school has been focused on. So if the school has indeed been focused on unmet expectations, and and I'm not sure that they have been, otherwise I'm not exactly sure why they're having so much difficulty figuring out what's getting in his way. And if they have been focused on collaboratively and proactively solving those problems with your son as a full partner, And if all of that's not working, then homeschooling may be a viable option because then collaborative and proactive solutions isn't working for your son and homeschooling him is. But I think it's a little bit hard to weigh in because there's some details missing. And I don't like to go out too much of on a limb here on this program on kids who we don't know or on missing information. But that so that might be the best we can do here. But Susie, I bet you've got some input as well. Um, well, our situation was the reverse, that um, our son was explosive at home and pretty uh, well-behaved at school. So there were times that he would unravel. Um, we um, worked with the school. Um, I found the guidance counselor to be uh, most helpful. 
and um, also uh, provided her with a copy of your book, Lost at School, uh, which helped. Um, But our son had permission in, in advance to go down to her office when he felt like he was starting to get upset about something. Um, and he would go to her office and quiet himself down and then return to the classroom. Um, we also taught him a vocabulary that something's bothering me, um, I'm frustrated, I'm having a hard time with this. Um, those things helped enormously. Good. You know, the the um, have the kid go to a place to calm down is a nice feature um, for emergent circumstances. Mm-hmm. But in a lot of places, I've seen people use that as a primary intervention strategy. It's a great emergent intervention strategy. But here's what I found. The same problems, same unmet expectations, were causing the kid to go to the quiet room countless times. Because going to the quiet room doesn't solve the problems that are causing the behaviors that cause people to think the kid needs the quiet room in the first place. So I love quiet rooms, but I love solving problems collaboratively and proactively even better. Um, quiet room is a great idea. It's just that it doesn't solve any problems reliably and durably. Let me give the call-in number again. We have no callers today, Susie. Unusual. Hmm. Yes. But it's 347-994-2981 and press the number 1. But let's turn to another email because we are behind on emails. So... That's okay, too. This one says, I'm very interested in using your model with a child with attachment difficulties and past traumatic experiences. I haven't yet discussed this with the family or school and have not filled out the lagging skills framework, although there are many. And by the way, this is a clinician who's writing about this. Mm -hmm. My concern is that he is often, uh, that often underlying the behavior is the trauma from the past. There are also a lot of unsolved problems. Thank you for your advice. Thank you for writing in, as we do with everybody who writes in. Um, Well, believing that the trauma from the past is underlying challenging behavior in the present is an interesting theory We just don't know if it's true. Um, And so kids who have past traumatic experiences, while the last thing we'd want to do is be insensitive to those past traumatic experiences, and the last thing we'd want to do is deprive a child of the opportunity to think about those past traumatic experiences, to talk about them if he wants to talk about them, We also don't want to invoke it as the cause of the behavior. The behaviors are caused by expectations the kid is having difficulty meeting. And it's possible that those are informed 
by the child's traumatic past and attachment difficulties, but it's also possible that they are not. We will find out what the child's concern, perspective, or point of view is when we make our list of unsolved problems, and it sounds like we may actually have that list already, prioritize them so we know which ones we want to talk with them about first and which ones we are going to set aside for now. That's called Plan C. And start talking with him about some of the unmet expectations or unsolved problems that are causing those behaviors. Now, just to point out, we're not talking about the behaviors. We're talking with the child about the problems that are causing those behaviors. And once again, we're not doing it in the heat of the moment. We're doing it proactively, once again made possible by the fact that we've already identified the child's unsolved problems using the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. So as relates to the second part, there's a lot of unsolved problems. That's typical. Whether whether we believe that a child has attachment difficulties and whether we know that the child has past traumatic experiences, uh, the vast majority of kids who people use the LSIP on to figure out lagging skills and unsolved problems have a lot of lagging skills checked off and have a lot of unsolved problems written in. So the prioritizing piece is crucial. Once all that's done, the stage is set for us to start solving those problems proactively rather than in the heat of the moment. And now we get to start hearing what the child has to tell us about his concern, perspective, point of view on the unsolved problems we've prioritized. And, um, you know, you might hear about past traumatic experiences in the empathy step of Plan B, where you're gathering information. But there's also an outstanding chance that that's not exactly what you're going to hear about. And that's why we're doing Plan B. Because while we want to be sensitive to a child's past, we also want to be open to the possibility that the child actually does not see the past as the what's getting in the way on the unsolved problems and unmet expectations of the present. You'll find out in the empathy step of Plan B. Susie, I'm wondering, this may not be what you wanted to pitch in on here, but I'm wondering if you can remember, we're going back here, were there ever times in using Plan B with your troop or with any other kids that you've used Plan B with that you had those jaw-dropping moments where you discovered that what you thought was getting in a child's way on a particular unsolved problem wasn't it? Any of those? Do you remember any? Um, not specifically, but I just remember hearing um, our son's concern and it it was totally different than what we had thought it had been. Is that what you were asking? Yes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yes, many times um, what we originally thought was his perspective or concern was uh, totally not. I have that experience commonly, and I still entertain myself by 
theorizing in my head, not out loud, theorizing mm-hmm. in my head about what I think the kid's going to say. And I would say, oh, 70 to 80% of the time, when I'm thinking, here's what I think the kid's going to say next, it's not what the kid says next. Yes. Any other thoughts on that one before we move on to another? Um, no, it sounds like pretty terrific advice, and um, there's not much that I'd like to add. Here's more. Here's another. Email. <laughs> we still have no callers. This may be a no-caller day. We have those every once in a while, but here we go. This is from a person who participated in a course that I taught in Oslo, Norway last year, and she's saying she now has a question. Is it okay to mention the behavior of the child in the conversation with the child? She says, I know I'm not supposed to focus on the behavior to find the problem, but is it okay to say, for example, what happened prior to your hitting? Or is the behavior not to be mentioned in the conversation? And do you have an example on how? I do have an example on how, because if we mention the behavior when we are trying to get the kid talking, the, often the effect is for the kid to think he's in trouble, become defensive, and not talk. Plus, the behavior is not the unsolved problem, the unmet expectation that is causing the behavior is the unsolved problem. And so we don't want to say to the kid what happened prior to you hitting. We want to identify unsolved problems ahead of time that are causing the hitting. Because if this kid is a hitter, hitters hit in response to many different unsolved problems. And so if we ask a kid what's going on prior to hitting, we're actually trying to ask them about the 37 different unsolved problems that are causing the hitting. And even if he doesn't become defensive, and even if he doesn't think he's in trouble, uh, we've just asked him about way too many things at once, and we've almost guaranteed, I don't know. So that's the important thing about leaving the behavior out. First of all, we want to make sure that the adults are clear about the difference between an unmet expectation and a challenging behavior like hitting. They are not even close to being the same thing. The unmet expectation is upstream. The behavior is downstream. That's why we say in the CPS model that you're paddling upstream to try to find the problems that are causing the behaviors that are floating down to us downstream. But we don't want to ask the kid about the behavior. We want to ask the kid about these specific problems that we've identified and prioritized that are causing the hitting. Um, and we just want to make sure that every adult knows the behavior is not the problem. The unsolved, pro- the unmet expectation is the problem. It can be confusing in the beginning. Um, crucial. And, and that's what the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems is for. Um, Susie, anything to add? Um, I think you've said many times that the child already knows he's not supposed to hit. Um, when my son got mad, he got too mad. Um, and in the beginning... Um, once he got to that point, um, you know, he did start to 
throw things and hit. So um, you really can't afford to miss the early warning signs. Um, in the in the very beginning, my daughter and I had to leave the house before things got really out of control and before we were able to solve some problems that was setting the behavior in motion. And sometimes leaving the house so as to defuse things, and this is in... um, this is something people sometimes do have to do, uh, as, in the beginning especially, as they're beginning to work on unsolved problems. Safety is still our number one priority. Um, yeah, I remember you guys having to go through that. Mm-hmm. Um, not fun times. No, she had a little, our daughter had a little army helmet that she would put on when uh, things got really heated. Um, maybe you look back on that and smile now, but you probably weren't smiling on it then. That's exactly right. In fact, um, most folks would use the word scary and um, desperate to describe situations in which they are so worried about getting hurt that they have to leave the house for things to chill. Yes, he was scary. He was threatening and screaming and... um it was a very difficult time. Um, we got to ask him if he wants to be on this program one of these days. We've had your daughter on. Mm-hmm. Your son has always been a reluctant participant, but maybe, just maybe, he'd be agreeable at this point in his life. It'd be cool for people to hear from a kid, a formerly explosive kid. We'll find out what he says. Yes. Here's another email. And we still have no callers, so we're going to plunge into more emails here. Uh, This is from England. They might be Um, uh, shoveling out from the snow, you know? He might be? Or or in England, you mean? No, no. I'm just saying people might not be calling in because they're preoccupied with digging out from the big storm. Quite a storm. And... um, I think you all in upstate New York dodged it, and us guys here in Portland, Maine, dodged it. We usually get hammered, so um, we felt a little out of sorts seeing other people get pummeled with snow and us (laughs) having had none. We didn't quite know what to do with ourselves, but the reason there's one reason we did not get whacked by this storm, and that is I bought the first snowblower of my entire life about three weeks ago. Really? Thereby virtually guaranteeing that mm-hmm. we will have no more big snow this winter. <laughs> and um, I want to let the people of Maine know that they can thank me um, in whatever manner that they see fit. Um, actually, in northern Maine, they hope for snow because they make they do a lot of uh, snowmobiling, snowmobiling business up there and um, they're not necessarily praying for no snow, but um, and the ski resorts certainly aren't. But um, if my snowblower, my new snowblower, keeps us from getting whacked with another big storm for the rest of the winter, well, it will have been a wonderful investment. 
That was very generous of you, very proactive, too, I might add. Well, there you go. And and many people do want me to take a selfie of myself using my snowblower because they know that I'm not very technical with these sorts of things and have trouble imagining me behind a snowblower. And um, I must admit, my family did find the whole thing to be very funny in the beginning. But um, there you have it. We digress. <laughs> so, yes, maybe people are digging out um, because there certainly is a lot of snow to dig out from. I uh, texted a old friend in Washington, D.C. during the storm and asked the question, got snow? And the response was, holy cow. <laughs> but th- the reality is, mm, I mean, it's just snow. Right. And it, it's an inconvenience, and you got to shovel it, but it's just snow. Yep. You're right. Um, here we go. Here's an email. Really enjoyed working through the information and working on Plan B on the website. I look forward to beginning on the next trouble family I work with here in England. So this is another clinician. I'd like to ask, at what age do you think you can begin with children? I'm working with a particular, this is of course one of our favorite questions to answer. I'm working with a particularly aggressive two-year-old and I'm assuming the children would need language and cognition skills before I could attempt to work with them with this model. Um, I don't agree. Yes, words um, do help, but lots of plan Bs are done without words. And as I always say, we start collaborating and trying to figure out what problems are getting in the way for kids when they are infants. Infants. Um, So, never too early to start trying to figure out what a kid's unsolved problems are. Never too early, and I'm talking even infancy here, so two years old would uh, be certainly within range. Never too early to try to figure out what the kid's concerns are, even if he can express neither of those things in words. And never too early to start trying to be responsive and try to come up with solutions to address the perceived concerns or unsolved problems. Um, and I would especially want to be doing that with a particularly aggressive two-year-old. It's just that it wouldn't be done in words. Um, infancy is our reference point. But we want to be building as quickly as possible for this kid, two-year-old or, two-year-old or otherwise, to begin participating in solving the problems that affect his or her life and to come up with solutions that work not only for us, but also for the kid. You do that with two-year-olds. You do some of that, even with infants. Susie, any further thoughts on that one? Um, just that in the beginning, even though our son was a bit older than this two-year-old, um, I think he was about 10 or 11, he was, as I've said before, quite compromised um, in that language, and um, so we would say to him, I see you're getting upset, and this is something that we can talk about. Let's see how we can work it out. Um, we just talked in a really simple, basic way to him, and um, that's the beauty of the model. It, it really works. 
Here's another. Hi, I love your model and subscribe to the newsletter and Facebook page just today. You know, let's, let's pause there. Uh, Susie, I know you're active on the Lives in the Balance parents' Facebook page, yes? Um, I'm starting, yes. <laughs> Good. Um, it has thousands and thousands of um, subscribers And as best I can gather, because I'm not on it too often, one of my colleagues here at Lives in the Balance, Kim Hopkins-Betts, is the person who oversees the three Lives in the Balance Facebook pages, one for clinicians, one for educators, and the extremely active one uh, for parents. Um, So I'm slightly out of the loop on what goes on on the Facebook page, but it looks like there's a lot of activity and conversation and people supporting each other. So I just mm-hmm. wanted to call that to people's attention. Um, because Kim just gave birth about a month ago to her another child, um, we are, and because Kim's the one who oversees the newsletter as well, we are a little bit behind on getting out our first newsletter of the year. So for people who have subscribed to the newsletter and are wondering what's going on, um, what's going on is that... Um, We'll we'll get one out as soon as Kim is able to uh, uh, get to it while she's simultaneously caring for her newborn. And the same goes for action alerts, which we had quite a few of uh, before she gave birth and none of birth. Um, Those will be up and running again soon enough as well. So now let's go back to the email. There's a lot of going on here at Lives in the Balance that we can report on, but we just um, are a little short-staffed with Kim out these days. My question is regarding my 8-year-old son. Will this plan B work in the the moment? We have been in cognitive behavioral therapy for the family since he was four. It's been helpful for all of us to stay sane, smile in parentheses, but little seems to work consistently in the moment of frustration. He knows all of the right answers and can give school teachers five ways he could or should have handled it. But in the moment, he usually chooses a different route and ends up in trouble by exploding verbally. He is a great kid. I'm glad people still feel that way. He has a gifted IQ, but um, his asynchronous development puts his intense strengths way out of balance. How do we help him in the moment? Make different choices. Thanks a ton. Well, I don't know if the goal is to help him make different choices in the heat of the moment, because in the heat of the moment of frustration, he's not thinking very clearly, and making good choices at those moments requires being very quick on his feet and being totally in control of himself and of what he's thinking. And that's why 99.9% of what goes on in Plan B takes place proactively, planned. Um, So my opinion is, while it would be great for your son to handle things better in the moment of frustration... And while at some point in the future he may be better at that, I don't think he's going to get better at it. And I don't think the goal right now is to help him handle things better in the moment. The goal right now 
is to use that assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems that you will also find on the Lives in the Balance website. The goal right now is to take the walking tour for parents where you'll learn how to use the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. By the way, I should let people know, new videos are coming to the walking tours on the Lives in the Balance website. Straight from Malmo, Sweden. The ones that are up there now are from Saskatchewan from about five or six years ago. But um, new video is coming just because we want to make sure it's as updated as possible. New video of using the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems is coming. New video of Plan B is coming with real kids and real parents and teachers. Um, All coming soon. But the goal is to use the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems to identify lagging skills. So we're viewing this great kid through the prism of lagging skills and really getting a sense for what's getting in his way. And identifying unsolved problems so we know what we're working with him on proactively so we have solutions in place that solve the problem so we we and he don't find ourselves in the heat of the moment with him at his worst scrambling around for what to do to solve a problem that we could have helped him solve proactively. Susie, I bet you got a bunch on that. Um, Well, I think it really helps to... uh, view the lacking skills and unsolved problems as a learning disability. It's a developmental delay. It's like a reading or math problem. So if the child has trouble reading, you figure out together what helped to get them. And um, usually solutions in the moment don't work so well. They um, don't stand the test of time. Um, which is another reason to be proactive and and uh, making an appointment with your child um, and picking a quiet time to discuss the unsolved problems. Uh, I know I've said it before, but I love your book, The Adventures of Stretch Moore. Um, it's just a really great way to... Um, read with your child uh, different examples and um, help them uh, with different scenarios how things can be worked out. All great advice. Now we have one other email in the queue for today, but I'm also looking, and we only have uh Less than two minutes left in the program, and we cannot answer this one in two minutes. So we are going to forego any other emails on today's program. My apologies to those of you who've been waiting for a very long time for your question or comment to be responded to, but we got five done today, which is um, something. And um, we'll try to work our way through all of the rest of the uh, emails that we have in the queue before we are done. Um at the end of May, but I think we're going to call it a day for today. Susie, thanks as always for your experiences and wisdom and for your willingness to devote time. I get 
lots of compliments on this program and people loving to hear from both of us. So thank you as always. My pleasure. And um, we'll be back at it again next week answering questions and fielding phone calls. And we'll talk to everybody then. Take Take care. care.